0: Well, glad you're here this morning. If you are here for the first time, we want to tell you again, reiterate what a privilege it is to have you here this morning. Have no way of knowing what brought you here or why you're here, but we're glad you're here. Hopefully you'll feel uh, at home here. Uh, We're a little bit of a hot mess, and that's just kind of the way it is. So we hope that you can find yourself at home here and enjoy your time here and feel welcome here. We'd love for you to consider coming back. You're actually coming at a really exciting time. It's a Interesting time in life. This church, God is doing huge things. We've got great things coming up, but we are in the middle of a study of the Book of Acts. It's a journey we began last year. Uh, we are into twenty-eight weeks of it, and we are in chapter twelve. And my whole kind of movement is really kind of challenging us to go verse by verse through Scripture. I want our church to have a love affair with God's Word. And I want our moments on Sunday to be explorations of those truths. So I teach that way. I enjoy teaching that way. I think putting us in a kind of encounters with God's Word is where we should be. That way you're not hearing what I say, but you can continue to go back and work through God's Word on your own even, and that you begin to develop a heartbeat and a passion uh, for truth. And so we're into a verse-by-verse journey through the book of Acts. It's taken us quite some time, and we're not halfway home. So we will, uh, we will get there. So. Um, We have been a long way. So we have seen the birth of the church, the call of the church, the sort of sending nature of the church. We have seen the church fill in its roles. We have seen devastation. We've seen brokenness. We've seen death. We've seen heartache. We've seen joy and triumph. We've seen individual call. We've seen great moments of the Holy Spirit. We've seen things that we don't have answers for. We've seen the miraculous, and we've seen the mundane. It's been an incredible up-and-down journey of, of really what life as a Christ follower looks like. It's not a picture of perfection. It's not a picture of, hey, once I say yes to Jesus, all my wildest dreams come true. The reality is is that life gets harder when we surrender our life to Christ. Right? The enemy not only comes against us, but it is in very opposition to the way and culture of the world around us. And therefore, life gets extremely complicated. The promise of God is never that life will get easier, but that life will have purpose and meaning and we have a promise that outweighs all of it and that's not going to be any more true than it's going to be today when we see the text that we're in so just by a quick little recap we're in this really interesting time we've had this pivotal moment where the the doors of salvation have been thrown open to the gentiles as well We are seeing an incredible movement of the Holy Spirit. The missionary movement has begun. Uh, The Holy Spirit is taking root in the lives of Gentiles, which are non-Jewish people. They have surrendered their lives to Christ. and, And last week we explored a town called Antioch where the Holy Spirit was exploding and people were coming to know Jesus by the thousands. And the missionary movement is going out from Jerusalem. And it's going all the way through the known Roman world. And soon we're going to begin to see Paul and several of his partners going on these missionaries' journeys that will take them as far as Rome. So the missionary movement has begun because the Holy Spirit has opened up the doors to salvation to the Gentiles. And we talked about chapter 10 and sort of the dream and vision that Cornelius and Peter had and how God had basically said that the death of Jesus Christ is open to anyone who professes faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior for salvation which is great news for us because we are grafted into God's covenant family the person of Christ. So now we have this gospel movement that is going out into the world. So that's where we are. The gospel is taking hold and it's taking root in the lives of Gentiles, and God is doing a huge thing. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open to Acts chapter 12, and uh, we're going to explore some difficult situations that are now beginning to unfold in what is otherwise relatively exciting times. So if you got your Bible, go ahead and open it up. Before we read in it together, let's just take a few moments and let's uh, pray. God, I thank you that your word is <clears throat> living and active. God, that it penetrates, even dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit, judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. God, you tell us that it is God-breathed, Lord, that Theoponestos, that literally you have breathed life into your word. God, I pray that um, what we would encounter today is you. God, we recognize that we don't discover truth. We don't read your word and then all of a sudden just become enlightened. You are the revealer of all truth. And so, God, I pray that you would teach our hearts this morning, even way above my words, that you would instruct our hearts, that you would speak directly to our struggles, our fears, our failures, our questions, our doubts. God, that you would move in those places. Take a moment in your own heart right now and just ask God to teach you something this morning. Uh, Whether it's something new or just something you need to hear, just pray that God would teach your heart. Pray for someone beside you, uh, behind you, even if you don't know their name, even if you're here for the first time. Just Try praying for somebody else. Be in the habit of praying for somebody else. Even if that seems a little odd or strange to you, just pray for somebody else that God would move in them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified, that you would be exalted. God, that your word would be lifted up and that you would draw us. To yourself, to the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So we're starting chapter 12. We've got this new little movement that's begun. The, gospel, uh, the doors of the gospel to the world have been thrown open. Uh, the missionary movement has begun. So we are now seeing this gospel being taken from Jerusalem to the ends of the known world, and it began with persecution. So the scattering of these believers in Acts 8 and 9 were the roots that would begin this missionary movement, and now we are about to see it go into full swing. Last week, we saw the Holy Spirit exploding, really exploding in Antioch, and You know, Gentiles were being given the exact same gifts as the Jews were at Pentecost. And evidence that God is moving and is drawing Gentiles unto himself. And what happens is that the apostles in Jerusalem hear that God is doing these huge things in Antioch. And so they send Barnabas up there to check it out, right? So Barnabas goes from Jerusalem to Antioch to see what God is doing. And he's so moved by what he's seeing that he goes 90 miles away and finds Paul. Now remember, Paul's been out of the picture for Years now, right? He got saved, he did some teaching, and then he went back to Tarsus. And so now, Barnabas is so moved by what's happening, he's saying, Paul would love this. I've got to go find that guy. So he goes 90 miles to Tarsus, and he finds Saul, and they go back to Antioch, and they spend a year there together, Barnabas and Paul, teaching new believers in Antioch truths about who God is, and the church begins to flourish and grow. And that's where we left off last week. we're going to shift gears a little bit and go back to Jerusalem to see that God's got some other things going on in the lives of the apostles. So let's look at chapter 12, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. And this happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for a public trial after the Passover. So Peter kept, was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring, to tr- bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. And sentries stood guard at the entrance, and suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him up and said, Quick, get up. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And the angel told him, and Peter followed him out of prison. He had no idea what the angel was doing or really what was happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate And went into the city, and it opened for them by itself, and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people were gathered and were praying. And Peter knocked On the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to the door. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When they kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him and they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, and he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers this, they said. He said, and they left, and then he left and went for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod uh, had made a thorough search for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. <clears throat> Long story, but a really important story. So life has shifted from the excitement of Antioch, from the incredible things that the Holy Spirit is doing back to Jerusalem, and things weren't as good in Jerusalem as they were in other places like Antioch, like Joppa, like Caesarea that we have seen over the past few weeks. Jerusalem was in the middle of a very difficult famine, a famine that was about to spread all the way up to the known Roman world. The apostles were there. Most of the other believers had been scattered all over the known world, right? Remember that from uh, chapter 9. They were spread all over. So it's the apostles that are left there. And it's not necessarily a good time. That period of peace that had surrounded the church for so many years is now being shattered through persecution. So Herod has been named king of Israel. Now you've got to keep in mind that in the Roman world, they did things a little bit differently. All right, When they would occupy a land, they would come in and they would conquer. The emperor, the Caesar, would appoint a king over that place. That king still reported to Caesar, but that king served as a leader of what was that other country. Now this Herod is not the same Herod that had all the infants put to death when Jesus was born, if you remember that story. This is actually that Herod's grandson. And he was sort of an awful person. And he was friends with this guy named Gaius who, was, who would become the emperor, the Caesar of all of Rome. And Gaius appointed his friend Herod, the grandson of Herod the Great, to take over that entire region and become king of Israel. So Herod becomes king of the region of Israel, not the nation of people, but all that area. And so he comes into Jerusalem and he's surely heard about this little religious sect that's been causing an uproar because the Jewish leaders couldn't stand these people because they were a threat to the very way of life. So when Herod shows up and he says, basically, I am king over all this land, right? They say, well, we got this huge problem. These, Jew- these Jewish Christians are causing a major problem with our way of life and we are in charge and they are not. And so Herod, to win their favor, right, to try and earn their support, basically begins a harassment campaign against the Christians. And the first thing he does, is he seizes James. Now, there's two James in this story. The first one is James, the brother of John. They are the sons of Zebedee, and they are the original, two of the original disciples that Jesus called about the time he called Peter and Andrew, right? James is one of the three that are in Jesus' inner circle, right? You've got Peter and John and James. That's this James, right? James, the original disciple and the apostle. Then you've got the other James that Peter mentions at the end. That's actually Jesus' half-brother, James. And James came to know his brother, the Lord, after Jesus' death. And he became so impassioned about the salvation story and the gospel that he becomes in charge of the entire church in Jerusalem. So he is in charge of the church that's left there in Jerusalem. Two very different people, but they're both important in the story. So Herod, knowing that he's got to strike at the source, arrests James, right, and has him beheaded, literally put to death by the sword. And the way that they would do it is they would bring them out into the public square and as a demonstration for the rest of the known world to see, to say, this is what happens if you're going to be one of these people, right? I will have you executed. And right there in the middle of the public square, they beheaded James, which of course is devastating to the early church, right? So we already had one martyrdom. We had Stephen, the first martyr. But James is the first apostle to be martyred. Remember, Stephen was just just a believer, but James was one of the leaders. He was one of the 12 apostles. And interestingly enough, 11 of the 12 apostles would go on and will go on to be martyred. They will all go on to die for their faith in Christ, all except one, which is James's brother, John, who actually is arrested and exiled and put way out in the pasture and dies of old age. But all of them are either arrested or martyred for their faith in Christ, all 12 apostles, right? And we're infatuated with the health and wealth gospel that says if we say yes to Jesus, he gives us all of our desires. These guys said yes to Jesus, and it cost them their lives. Story for another time. So James is executed. It was devastating to the church. You can only imagine. Well, when it, when it says that when Herod see, saw how much that pleased everybody, when they were like, that's fantastic, he decided to take it one step further, and he arrested and seized Peter. Now, James, the brother of Jesus, right, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, but Peter was the leader of the church. He was the face of all of Christianity. He was the one in which Jesus said, Peter, on you, I will build the church. And the gates of hell basically will not overcome it. You remember that moment. Peter was the leader of the church. And so Herod, having this sort of movement that says, I love the praise of people, seizes Peter, and he puts him on trial. However, Herod puts him on trial during Passover. And the Jewish laws and customs wouldn't allow for executions on Passover, had to wait till the feast was over, Right? So that's why Jesus, when arrested on Thursday, ends up not being crucified till Friday. The Passover feast has to end Thursday night in order for anybody to be put to death. It's just part of the rule. So they arrest Peter, and Herod can't put him to death because he's trying to please the people. If he has him killed during Passover, the people would re- rebel because he broke the law. So basically he's got jail. And it says that he took, what, four groups of four soldiers to guard Peter. Basically four watches, four soldiers, and here's how it went. Two of the soldiers chained themselves to Peter. So they actually took chains, and they physically put them on their wrists and chained themselves to Peter. The other two guards stood watch right outside the gate. High security imprisonment, right? You don't get a whole lot more high security than chaining yourself to two Roman guards. More about why they did this in just a moment. But they chained themselves to the guards, right? And, and they had put two guards, stationed two guards outside. The night before Peter goes on trial, he's already known what happened to James. Everybody knows James was executed, beheaded. It was a big deal. The night before he's to go on trial be sentenced to death, right, an angel of the Lord shows up and fills the cell with this incredibly bright light, which is not uncommon. When we see the angel of the Lord show up, God's presence, light pierces darkness, right, and things happen, right? Remember when Saul had that encounter with the angel of the Lord on the road to Damascus, this bright light shone all around him, God's presence, Is the opposite of darkness. And light shows in this dark cell in the middle of the night. Presence of God. Right? Peter sacked out. I mean sound asleep chained to two guards. Which is actually really fascinating. If you think on the the night before you're about to be beheaded. That you're sound asleep between two guards. In fact, you're so sound asleep that when the angel of the Lord appears, he has to strike Peter on the side to wake him up. Right? Either Peter really trusts the Lord and, and just is not afraid of death. I mean, I would be petrified, not afraid of death, Or he just was really tired, right? But either way, he is sound asleep, and the angel of the Lord, I guess, kicks him, strikes him, does something. Peter, wake up, right? Peter gets up and he's kind of in this daze. In fact, he doesn't figure out what's going on until a little later. He thinks he's having a vision. He'd already had this really intense vision back in chapter 10. You remember where God had showed him this, uh, this sheet that was coming down, had all the animals in it, and it was it was a really intense, vivid image. And so Peter thinks that maybe that's what's happening. But as he sits up, the chains fall off his wrists. And the angel Lord says, get up and put your clothes on, right? Put your, your robe on and your sandals on and follow me. They go right past the guards. Then the iron gate that opens from the jail to the city, it just opens miraculously for them. And they get a full city block down the road, a full street links down the road, and the angel of the Lord disappears. And it says that Peter, about that time, began to come to his senses. It says he came to himself, right? So he kind of figured out that this was not a vision. Something was happening, right? And he says, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent an angel to rescue me from Herod's clutches, and from everything the Jewish people had hoped would happen, what they would anticipated, God had rescued me. So he's standing there in the middle of the street in the middle of the night, jail doors open behind him, no chains, standing there, and he does the only thing he knows to do. He goes to Mary's house, and Mary, this Mary, was the mother of John Mark. And her house was a really popular house for Christians to gather at. It must have been either large or it was safe, but it was a known place for the, the church to go to. And so Peter goes there to this house and he knocks on the outer door knowing full well that he would find the community there. And sure enough, the church community is gathered there and they are earnestly, or really the word there's fervently, which includes a deep passion, passionately praying for Peter. Right? They're praying for him. Peter knocks on the door. Knock knock knock, right? Middle of the night. This little servant girl comes. Her name is Rhoda. She comes. And Peter, she says, "Who is it?" And Peter says, "It's me." And she freaks out, I mean freaks out, overjoyed. And you got to remember, James had just been beheaded. They thought they would never see Peter again. And she's so overjoyed that she just forgets to open the door and goes running back in the house to tell all of the church. And the church would gather, she busts in, she's like, you're not going to believe it. And they don't believe her either. None of them expected, even though they were praying, they didn't expect to see Peter because James had just been killed. And they go, you're crazy. In fact, they tell her she's out of her mind. They say, you are out of your mind. And she's like, no, I swear, I heard his voice. Like, he is out there, right? And they said, no, it's that's not him. That must be his angel. There was a belief that, that each person had a guardian angel. Maybe that's what Rhoda was seeing or hearing, or actually hearing. She said, no, that's not it. So they all get up and they go to the door. And sure enough, it's Peter, and they freak out. I mean, they start screaming and jumping and dancing. And it says that Peter has to motion for them to be quiet, like, hey, this is, I'm not kidding. I just got released from jail, like, shot shit. For real, right? Gets them to finally be quiet and tells them everything that happened. And they are ecstatic. And he looks at them and he says, go tell James, right? This is not the James, obviously, beheaded. James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and have him tell the brothers there, right? Tell the leaders. And then he just takes off to another place. We have no idea where he goes. Either it doesn't matter, or Luke is trying to not let everybody know. Some people think that he went all the way to Rome, but nobody knows. So he just goes away. Well, in Luke's little tongue-in-cheek way at the very end there, he says, in the morning, right, so in the morning, there was no small commotion, right? So it's his little tongue-in-cheek way of saying, when they got up, and the guards came to sort of their senses, and they look around, and there was no Peter. They freaked out. And Herod freaked out. And he was furious. And he looked everywhere and he couldn't find him. And he called the guards in and he cross examined him and nobody had any answers. And he had him executed. In those days, Roman code said this that if a prisoner escaped under your watch as a guard, you had to take that person's sentence. So if they were in for 40 lashes and they left, you got the 40 lashes, right? Whatever that punishment was, this is why those guards chained themselves to Peter. Because he was on trial for his life. If he escaped, it would cost me mine. When Herod examined all of those guards, there was no excuse, and he had them all killed. This is the kind of persecution and desperation the Christians are facing. It makes no sense. But God miraculously delivers Peter, and the guards lose their lives. Now, that's the scenario. It'd be really easy to look at this passage and, and talk about the miraculous moment and celebrate this incredible thing that, that Peter had been delivered from the clutches of sure death, that the angel Lord had shown up in this incredible light, and chains were falling off, and doors were opened. And, and because the church prayed, gathered together and earnestly prayed, God did this incredible thing, that would be amazing. And we should most likely focus on that. But I can't get past something that plagues my heart in this text. And it's a question that most of us don't want to ask because we don't really want to know the answer, if there is one. But it's a question that we can't shake, and that's this. Why not James? So here's the thing. James was arrested, seized, put on trial for his life. And what we know from the book of Acts, it's very presumable presumable that the church got together and they prayed for James. The same way they prayed for Peter. They gathered there, and they sought the Lord, and they prayed, and they said, God, deliver James to us. Remember, James isn't just some schlub off the street, right? This is a disciple. This was one who Jesus himself handpicked and invited into this three-year journey where they knew each other intimately, where he was invited into the inner circle and saw things that other disciples never got to see. He was a leader of the church. He was beloved, and he loved Jesus. And the church gathered, and they prayed, and they said, God, give us James, save him, deliver him. And James was beheaded, and the church was devastated. Now, 2,000 years go by, and it's easy for us to look at the story and get it and just kind of go, well, you know, God was doing what God will do. But what if you were related to James? What if James was your dad or your brother or your friend? What if you had walked with him all your life? What if you came before the Lord and you pleaded with all of your heart, God, please save my father, save my friend save him, he loves you, he's all these things, and we plead him, and they walked him out of that jail, and they put him in the city square, and they cut his head off, what do you do with that, so then Peter gets arrested, and you do the same thing, although it's understandable that maybe you would just kind of give up, but no, the church decides to keep praying, and God delivers Peter, and while you're super grateful for that, you're still wondering why Peter and not James, my dad, my friend, my whatever, and there is not a single answer to that question. But have you ever been there? Have you ever prayed deeply for God to do something like, "Please, Lord, pleaded and pleaded and pleaded," and not only does it seem not to happen, it seems like God is absent or not present or something. But see, these are the questions that most of us feel like we're not allowed to ask. So we get in ourselves in our Christian circles and we throw out little answer, answers like, "Just have faith." But in the back corners of all of our hearts. These are the questions that wake us and hurt us and that we pretend don't exist and we sweep them under our Christian rugs, we cover them up and we pretend that we don't ask them because if we do, maybe God will demonstrate or think that's a lack of faith and we'll receive some kind of punishment or lack of blessing or people will ridicule us or whatever. And so we build up enough of those things until one day everything just comes crashing down and we hit a crisis. Because we've built up enough unanswered questions. Because most of us are on quests for answers. Our culture drives us that way. Find out what's going on and fix it. And in lack of having a good answer, we just make stuff up. It's where poor theology comes from. So why not James? I, I have no idea. I don't know. I would love to give you a great answer. But the reality is that God's sovereignty exists in both situations. But the truth is, I don't know. But what it caused me to really think about was this. After James died, was crucif- or was killed, was beheaded, Peter gets arrested, and the church gathers together again to earnestly pray. And it even says that the church was gathered in Mary's house, and they earnestly prayed to God for him. So even in the wake of this incredibly difficult, challenging moment, the church gathered again and said, God, we will continue to seek you. We don't see anything in any of these passages about questions they ask. Maybe they were there, maybe they weren't. But we just see the church gather together. What I began to ask myself was this. What does that moment look like? As individuals as the church, when we run into the unanswerable things in our life, what does that deep, earnest moment of prayer look like? Where I go back to the Lord and basically say, God, I don't understand. But I'm going to continue to seek you. I'm going to continue to ask. And I came across this section of Philippians that I think speaks directly into that moment. And it doesn't have that much to do like specifically with our story, but I think it's a moment where Paul is instructing the church in the middle of crisis to earnestly fall before the Lord. And I started thinking about how that should echo in my own life. Because here's where I am. I'd be so upset and so angry that I would just sort of token throw my prayers out to the Lord and be like, you know, I I don't know, God, I don't know why, but I mean guess if you're going to do something, do it. And if not, then don't. I mean, I would be broken and devastated. But yet the church finds a way to move in and through all that pain, to earnestly believe that God can still do tremendous things. And in this moment of earnest prayer, God does move. Why? We're not sure, except to know that He is God. But in our quest for answers, I think we overlook the incredible nature of God. Because in those moments... Not only are we allowed to ask those questions, but I believe that God embraces us when we do. Because in those moments, in our quest to say, God, I don't understand. Why James? Why this? God oftentimes reveals himself. And the goal that God has for you is not a transfer of information, but it's maturity and growth in who he is. But we are in a quest for answers. And God wants us to be in a quest for his heart. And oftentimes, there are no answers. So, in Philippians chapter 4, I'm going to go just a few verses into this because I think it's really important. The church is facing really incredible times, difficult times. Two years ago, when we read through the book of Philippians together, you may remember it was a terrible time to be a believer, it was hard. Persecution was real. This is years after what we're reading happening in Acts. And they were being literally slaughtered for their faith in Christ. And not only that, they were living in extreme poverty, there was no food. There were no things. They were in deep poverty, and every day they woke up was a day that they might lose their life in Christ or because of Christ. And to add kind of insult and difficulty to that, there was a huge internal struggle that was going on. Chapter 4 is actually addressing an argument that's happening between two very prominent, very important women in the church. And they are so at odds that Paul, who is in prison in Rome, has to address the conflict in his letter to the church church is being torn apart from the inside out, struggling from the outside in. It is a very incredible time. And in chapter 4, Paul writes to them something that I think speaks volumes into the situation in Jerusalem and volumes into my heart as I think about it. And this is what he says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Remember, church is going through all these things. He says, listen, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, listen, I know that what you're going through is incredibly challenging. I know that you're facing persecution and poverty. And the church seems like it's falling apart on some level from the inside out. It is being divided almost. I know these are things that you're facing. But listen to me. Do not be anxious or worrisome is the word there about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to the Lord. And God, right, who transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul is speaking directly into one of these moments. The church is living in that moment right now in Jerusalem. They just got the most devastating news. Most of them would have been present for the execution of James. They are watching all they know become unraveled. They've now got Peter, the leader of the church. Most of their friends have been scattered all over the known countryside. There was a famine in Jerusalem. Life was really cruddy. There was not a lot of time here to be saying, hey, these are great days. No, these days were awful. And they just watched people they loved die, and they just watched their beloved leader get arrested and face certain death as well. Yet the church gathers together in earnest prayer. And I think what Paul says to the church in Philippians is very relevant here. He says, listen, do not be anxious or worrisome about anything. So if you're a believer gathered in Jerusalem, what's the one thing that's on your mind? You are anxious. Not only are you anxious for Peter, but you know that your life as a follower of Christ is most likely next. Because Herod, this kind of crazy asinine leader, is now going all over the world, going to be capturing people and persecuting them, and it's beginning in Jerusalem. And he just slaughtered one of your leaders and he's about to do it again. And so what do you do? You've got a little anxiety in you. Because not only is that your reality, but you can't feed your family. You put those things together and anxiety is real. And it's exactly what the church in Philippi is facing. And so here's Paul with all of his sort of kind of wisdom saying, hey, don't be anxious, right? It's not like he's sitting in some throne and mansion somewhere. He's in jail himself, facing death himself in Rome. And he says, don't be anxious. Now, the Greek word there for anxious, that word for worrisome is really interesting. It's actually the word merimneo, and it's a combination of two words, divided mind. And it's really interesting because it carries a connotation, a spiritual connotation with it. Basically, what the Greek word means is that don't be of a spiritually broken, divided mind. Because that's what worry is, isn't it? Worry at the end of the day is not necessarily, for followers of Christ, a physical thing. It's a divided mind between do I trust who God is and who He says He is and what He's going to do for me, or do I live in the fear of the reality of what I see? My mind is divided between those two things. It's split and it's spiritual. It's spiritual because God tells us not to do it. See, most of us don't think that worry or anxiety is anything that's that big a deal. But the truth is, is that worry is disobedience. And disobedience is sin. And worry is also unbelief. It's disobedience because Jesus himself tells us not to do it. Matthew chapter 6, he says, do not worry about tomorrow for what tomorrow will bring. For each day is enough trouble of its own. Don't you believe that God who's done all these things will take care of you? That's basically what Matthew 6, 34 says. Jesus himself says don't do it. Paul says don't do it. When we engage in anxiety and in worry and in broken, divided minds, we are living in direct disobedience. And disobedience, any way you shape it, is sin. But most of us don't see worry that way. We just ask God to take it away. But when you live in anxiety and worry, you are living in active sin. Worry is also unbelief. It's a proclamation that you do not trust God to do the things that God says he will do. God, when I worry about my life, what I will eat, what I will do, if we will be safe, I am actively proclaiming that you are not big enough to take care of the things in my life. All of us live there. Every single one of us lives there. And that's why when this church gathers in Jerusalem, or when the Philippians gather, when Paul says do not be anxious, Jesus himself says in Matthew 6, it means Trust Jesus. Trust in the Lord. Which of course is so much easier said than done. But this is where that earnest moment of seeking the Lord begins. It begins in a moment that says, God, everything around me says, hit the panic button. Everything says, pull the ripcord, whatever it takes, I've got to take care of myself. But in the middle of that chaos, that earnest moment, God says, Don't worry. Don't worry. So the first thing that we see is, do not be anxious in anything, but in everything, right? So instead, exchange that worry for taking your request to the Lord. So instead of sitting and being frustrated and fearful and not knowing what to do, exchange that. But in everything, petition and prayer, thanksgiving, bring your request to the Lord. It's an exchange. Instead of sitting in worry and anxiety, exchange those things. And petition and pray and request of the Lord. Which is basically what the church in Jerusalem does. Instead of sitting in their fear and in their worry and their anxiety, they say, we need to gather together. And we've got to seek the Lord. Because we're going to exchange what should be deep, fearful thoughts and hearts. And we're going to bring it all to the Lord. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, take all that, right? All that anxiety. Don't be anxious about it. But. So instead, that little qualifier, but bring everything to the Lord. Because worry and anxiety is the opposite of that. It's taking everything I've got and putting it in me. And I begin to think through it. I begin to contemplate. I begin to worry about it. I begin to work for its end, to try and control it, to do whatever. The opposite of that is exchanging all of those fears and saying, God, I'm bringing it all to you. To you. It's a great exchange. And that's what called to do and what we see happening in jerusalem is instead of sitting there being afraid and being broken over james they say this is more of a time for us to gather and they bring it to the lord and they find themselves in mary's house praying earnestly that god would move so you've got this don't be instead make this exchange and do a few things right bring these things to the lord through petition and prayer Prayer is that, and I won't talk a lot about it, but prayer is that relationship, it's the movement, it's the worship, it's the invitation to know the very heartbeat of God. Prayer is not the continual asking. That's why he says, but in everything through prayer and petition. Prayer is that part where we gather before the Lord that made everything and say, God, I want to know you. God, reveal yourself to me. It may involve asking, it may not. It is our open heart to the heartbeat of, our open line to the heartbeat of God through the person of Jesus Christ. And we are called into it because it's in those moments that we decide or we discover the character of God because God reveals himself. So he says, in those moments, exchange anxiety by bringing all of that stuff to the Lord through that relationship that invites you to know God's heartbeat, prayer. And in addition to that, through petition. You know what petition is? It's not just trying to do something and do something and do something until it happens. It actually just is seeking and asking. It's the petition that says, God. It's that earnest part where the church falls on its knees and says, please, Lord, save Peter. That is the petition. They're not the same. Most of us are really good at the petitioning. We fire our things off from the Lord. We start prayerless. We beg and we ask and we ask and we ask and we ask. But there's a difference in just throwing our requests at God. And actually diving into a prayerful moment that says, God, I want to know your heartbeat. Most of our petitions are driven at answers. God, show me. God, give me. God, do for me. But prayer is driven by our desire to know God's heartbeat. And in the middle of that heartbeat, we say, God, hear me. And I'm going to ask you for this because I don't know what else to ask for. So he says, in that great exchange of anxiety, when we put those things on the Lord through that moment of deep worship of prayer, we petition God, and he says, with what? With thanksgiving. I mean, if you're a gathered at church in Philippi, the last thing you're thinking about is being thankful, right? You're being persecuted. You're starving. You're fighting from the inside out. This is not what you thought you signed up for. Paul's in prison. The church in Jerusalem is about shattered. It's been scattered. There's a famine. James is dead. Peter's about to die. And yet here we're saying, be thankful? See, following Christ involves coming to an understanding that there is something bigger at play than what we can see and understand. It's recognizing that there is a glory that outweighs all the things that this world has to offer that is not only made up in the abundant life that begins in my heart, a real full life here, but is the promise of things to come. It's the eternal glory that outweighs everything. And it was the anchor for which the early church attached their lives. Because life was hard. It was not a God blesses you when you pray and you get a bunch of financial things, which is how we see blessing today. But they saw blessing in terms of God, we count it joyful, and we count it worthy to suffer for your name. Gratitude was that God had rescued them from certain death, not just physical death, but spiritual death, and saved them. I don't know about your life, but my life without Jesus was on a trajectory for destruction. I was lost, and I was empty, and I was dying. And Jesus saved me. Didn't do it on my own, didn't do anything. He stepped into my life and intercepted me and saved me. Life has not gotten easier. In fact, on the other trajectory, maybe life would have been more comfortable. However, what I hang on to and what I see is that I've been rescued from death and I have been given real life. What Paul is saying is that, listen, James faces death. Peter's facing death. You're struggling, I get it, but there is a glory and a promise of a God who is bigger than all of that, who has rescued you and saved you, and you're complaining about the temperature and the church you worship in. And God has delivered you from certain death. Not by the hand of a guy that's a beheader, but by the hand of the enemy. With thanksgiving, we are a complaining generation. We are a comforted generation that wants to be coddled on all sides. It's not what Thanksgiving means. God, thank you that you gave me a car and a house. has nothing to do with being thankful. Being thankful is that first spiritual movement that says, God, you have redeemed me and saved me. So wrapping everything up with this last point, he says this, verse 7. I know I'm running out of time. He says, and then after all those things, this great exchange of my anxiety and my worry, putting them on the Lord, prayer, petition, with great thanksgiving. Look at what happens. That God will give the the peace of God, excuse me, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So listen to what he says. He doesn't say once you do these things, God will answer the why James question. He will show up and say, listen, Trev, you know what? You did it right, man. You prayed well. You trusted with thanksgiving. Here's why I let James die, and here's why Peter was saved. He doesn't say that at all. He doesn't say why life got hard for you. No promise of answers. What Paul says is this. When you do that, the peace of God, which transcends understanding. What that means is that in the middle of where you should have more questions or where there should be more chaos, God's peace fills you. Not answers. There may be no answers to the why James questions this side of heaven. You may just have to rest in that. But God's peace, which makes no sense. Because the church should be freaking out. They should be. The believers in Jerusalem should be running for the hills. When they murdered James, they should have taken off every man and woman for themselves. Go save yourself. But they didn't. They gathered back together in the one place where everybody knew they would be, and they prayed for Peter. Because God's peace transcends understanding. It doesn't make sense. It's why as a follower of Christ, right, when terrible, difficult things happen, and we truly trust God, even in the middle of a lack of answers, there's that sense that just says, God, I I just want to trust you. I don't know. And it hurts and I'm grieving, and I'm broken, but you are real. That doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from you. You cannot work yourself to that place. It is given by the Lord, and it's given by the Lord when we engage in these things. We exchange our anxiety. We spend time in prayer. We petition God, and God gives us a peace which doesn't make sense, and it's not a peace that's like, yay, everything's great. It's just a peace that says, I'm broken, And I don't understand. But God, I want you to do something here or use me or whatever. And then what happens lastly? And then the peace of God. since all understanding, we'll do what? We'll guard your hearts and minds. What will it guard it from? We'll guard it from the lies of the enemy in the world that tells you there is no God, that God is not in control, that he's not big enough to take care of these things or do that. That's what the world wants you to tell. So yeah, the world looks at, at the church in Jerusalem. They say, yeah, really, there's a God? Well, he didn't save James. Right? Really believe in that God? The world wants to fill you through full of those things. So what does the peace of God do? It guards your hearts and minds from the lies of the world that says, look, God can't do it, you can. Work for yourself, do for yourself, take care of your own, control your own situation, whatever. Protects you from those lies because peace comes in the middle of chaos. So guess what? I don't have an answer for the why James question. I've got zero answers, except for the fact that I trust in God's sovereignty, both in James' situation and in Peter's, that God was glorifying himself. But I don't know why. And if I was sitting with James' family, I would have absolutely no answers. I've had those moments in my own life, and I still don't have answers for them. However, in that moment, the church is driven to earnest and deep and real moments of prayer, both as individuals and as a community, that are challenging the very existence of our fearful, worrying, controlling minds to exchange those things by seeking God's heart, petitioning Him, and being grateful about the fact that He has saved us and rescued us, and that if I die today, I get to spend eternity with the Lord. And in those moments, God exchanges my worry for a peace that doesn't make sense all the time. And he promises to guard my heart and mind. He doesn't promise to give me stuff, give me things, give me blessings, buy me a plane, give me whatever. He doesn't even promise to give me an answer for the question I'm asking. He just promises to protect my heart. This is what we should be driven to as a church. Then when chaos comes from outside, inside, wherever, then we'll be driven to our knees to earnestly seek the Lord as individuals and as a community Say, God, not what we, but what you.